Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Thank you, Mel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you that you uh, are here to speak to each and every one of us and that your spirit will be with us now to bring our thoughts, our thoughts to mind that we need to think, uh, bring the memories and even the emotions that we need to feel and remember today so that you can speak to our lives and bring life to us, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to see you this morning. So we are now uh, less than one chapter into the second half of Mark, and Mark is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And in the first half, we see him recording things from the first couple of years of Jesus' ministry, largely which get at answering the question, who is this Jesus? And now that that question is answered, Mark turns his attention to recording more of the incidences that Jesus does that actually teach us and show us what it means to be his disciple what it means to actually follow him. And this passage today and even last passage, last week's passage get us very quickly to the idea that Jesus is going to be spending a lot of time teaching us about relationship because it is relationship with him and relationship with others, which is the core of discipleship. In Jesus' mind, relationships are the mission. Now, today we're going to actually start at the end of this verse because... It actually does a good job of summarizing this whole theme. So let's take a look at it. Verse 49, it says, Everyone will be salted with fire. And if we look over in Matthew 5.13, uh, Jesus says this same phrase, but he says it a little more pointedly. He says, You are the salt of the earth. And then it goes on and says, Salt is good. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, this is an amazingly powerful metaphor. We've already talked about the fact that when Jesus speaks in metaphors or in parables a lot of times, they're, they're almost multifaceted, that you can just keep turning and see just something different. And this is, I think, one of the most powerful sections of Scripture for Jesus in terms of the power of the metaphors that he teaches about. And basically what Jesus is saying here, and I'll show you this in a minute, is that if we learn to do relationship the way he's teaching us in this passage, that it will essentially almost reinvent or reboot or refresh our whole picture of how and why we live in relationship. Now, those are strong words to say that it's going to reinvent, it's going to reboot, it's going to refresh, but, but we've been used to that kind of challenge all along from Jesus. When we've looked at him all throughout Mark, he's a, he's a guy who likes to challenge us. And he's challenged us, and we even see it still in this passage, with things that we don't really get right away. I mean, look at the disciples. How many times have we already talked over the past few weeks that he's talked to them about going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying, and we see in this passage they still don't get it, right? It's almost like Jesus is trying to make this big paradigm shift in us, this, this whole way of that we look through our glasses and see the world and changing it all up. And Jesus continues in this passage to challenge us deeper in relationship. And for some of us, that's going to mean it's going to be really uncomfortable because it's going to cause us to have to reinvent completely the way we think about relationship. And for some of us, maybe it's going to challenge us to go deeper and it's going to be refreshing because maybe we're starting to grasp it and we're going to be hungry and want more. So what about this salt thing that I started off with here? I really think it, 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 it frames this passage 
Because this is one of the most rich metaphors that Jesus actually uses. Now, uh, let's just think about it practically for a minute. From the ancient times, we know that salt was used in, in medicine. It was used actually as, a, as an antiseptic. In fact, there's historians who say that when uh, Napoleon was beat in Prussia one time and retreating, that he lost so many men because they didn't have salt to put on the wounds. You've heard about putting salt, rubbing salt on the wounds. And because they didn't have salt, they had so many infections and so many more of his soldiers died. And it was just, it was just brutal. So from ancient of days, all the way back to the time of Jesus and before, it was used for medicinal purposes. But it was also used as the primary preservative, right? So we can look at this and say, and, and even, even from the, this is, this is just kind of an interesting tidbit as I was reading about it. In the Roman times during Jesus' era, salt was referred to as white gold, because it was so valuable. In fact, the word salt comes, or the word salary comes from the word salt. That's how valuable it was. It was equated with what you would pay somebody for their wages, for their earning, for their living. So practically, if we just, if we just even look at it just from a very pure practical standpoint, uh, Jesus, in using this metaphor, is communicating something that they would have all known, that he's saying there's something about salt that preserves something beautiful. There's something about salt that brings healing. And something about salt that is even used in enhancing taste. And Because we all know, if, we, if, you, if you're a cook, you know that salt, putting salt on something, it doesn't just make it taste salty. If you put salt on meat, it makes it taste more meaty. If you put salt on beans, it makes it taste more beany, I guess. Whatever you want to say. I mean, salt is something that enhances the flavor of whatever it's on. And Jesus is saying to us, if you learn to live in relationship like I'm teaching before this, that you're going to have the best you come out that you could possibly want. And you're going to be an agent to bring preservation of beauty in others and healing into other people's lives and the best in other people out as well. But there's more to that than this. We can look at the way salt is used in the Old Testament, in the Bible. In the, in the Bible, it's used ceremonially and in, in two different ways. It was used at the birth of a child. At the birth of a child, they would, they would actually wash the baby in salt. And ceremonially, what that meant was they were saying before God that we are dedicating this child to be true, to be full of integrity, to be that way before you, God, and other people. And so when Jesus says that we should be the salt of the earth, he's giving us that invitation to be exactly that to the world around us and to other people. But even further than that, Salt was used in every sacrifice, almost every sacrifice made in the temple worship in Jewish religion, in the Jewish faith. And what the salt actually meant, it's actually referred to as the salt of covenant. So by putting salt on your sacrifice as you were giving it to God, it was a reminder that there was this covenant of friendship between you and God that could never be broken, that was sure that was stable, that was constant. And that aspect of worship in the temple transferred even into the daily lives of not just the Jews, but even across ancient peoples. If you sat down with somebody at a meal, at a meal and they put salt out and you were able to salt your food, it was, it was a sign of a covenant relationship between you and the person you were sharing the meal with. 
Jesus is saying that he wants us to learn to live in that kind of constancy, that kind of surety of covenant friendship with him and with others and what he's saying. So let's go back through the other metaphors that lead up to this that he's talking about. The passage actually starts out with, with Jesus left where he was. And it talks about how he, they went to be in private so he could teach his disciples in private, which uh, to us should really tell us how important this is, what he's telling and what he's talking about here. And initially that teaching went on to the same thing he'd been teaching about before, the fact that he was going to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer, he was going to die on a cross, and he was going to be raised again. And the, the text says that the disciples, the text says that they did not understand what it meant. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Now think about it, because it also indicates in this passage that Jesus is talking plainly. He's not talking in parables. He's not talking obscurely. He's telling them point by point, this is what's going to happen. And he's using words that they understand, but they still don't get it. The words are simple enough. But you see, what Jesus is doing here is he's challenging their paradigm of what they grew up with to believe and think and how life should be and what was fair and what was justice and what was right and what was godly and what the Messiah was. He's challenging everything they were ever taught to think. He's completely changing their paradigm. It's almost like uh, this process going on where if we were all soccer fans and we were sitting in a stadium and all of a sudden they came out and announced in the championship game that the star player was going to play with his legs tied together. It's almost that kind of a, well, how would you react to that? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? It's such a big change. And that's how difficult it is for a lot of us, I think, to change the way we view about relationships as well and how we think about relationships. Because each and every one of us from birth on have been taught what healthy relationships are, whether it's really healthy or not. We've just grown up with a way to think about what it means to be healthy, what it means to be an adult. We've grown up with those ideas. And sometimes when Jesus challenges us, we go through life, even in our own devotional life, even in church, even in our own faith, not understanding and being too fearful to ask, being too confused. And, and sometimes, maybe the disciples were even here, maybe sometimes it, it, it's really just too proud to openly surrender the fact that we don't understand. We don't know what's going on. And it becomes a barrier to us. And the encouraging thing in this passage surrounding this is that Jesus doesn't seem to get annoyed with them on this issue at all. In fact, he just patiently, as we look at the Bible, keeps returning over and over again to the same thing, just trying to talk about it in a different way, just trying to talk about it again, saying, continue to walk. I mean, he's not upset by it at all. It's almost like he doesn't expect them to really fully get it. And when we see this from like 60,000 feet up, instead of all the frustration we see when we're right in the midst of our own questions and our own doubts, it should really bring great comfort to us that God is so amazingly patient that he's okay that we don't get it. And yet he's confident that one day we'll see the power and the glory and see it clearly on the other side of the cross. And he's not worried about getting us there because he's going to take us there 
He's just going to continue to be with us. You see, Jesus wants us to get it. And he's going to walk with us. So in one sense, to me, one of the first points that we should walk away from this passage with about relationship with Jesus and understanding how to walk into healthy relationship like he wants is let's just relax about the areas that we're confused about, the areas that we're discouraged about, the areas we think we're never going to understand, we're never going to get it. Just, it's almost like he's saying, let that, just, just let that melt away. Just relax. I've got it. I'm going to be with you. We're going to get through it. And yet we also see in this passage the disciples revealing an aspect of a relationship that so easily crops up in all of us. And it has to do with this idea of what we define as maturity. That sometimes our definition of maturity keeps us at a distance from Jesus. See, the disciples, it says, are arguing among themselves. Who will be the greatest? You know, oftentimes when we face something we don't understand, that we get frustrated with, that we feel inadequate in, we kind of almost approach it with this sense of bravado. We, we have to come up with an answer. We have to have an argument to try to create the, that we know. We have to do something to make us feel better. We have to do something to make us feel in control. We have to, we have to work harder at it. We have to push ourselves harder at it, right? I know, I know I'm guilty of that at times. After all, isn't that the way adults act? Isn't that a definition of who an adult is? Adults are self-sufficient. Adults are problem solvers. They're the people who can get the answers. Adults are responsible. They can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they can make their world be what it needs to be because that's what mature is. They have the stuff, and they can show that they have the stuff. And we oftentimes, as adults, truth be told, we seek affirmation that we really are mature by trying to look good, by trying to succeed well, by showing us that we have the stuff, that we are adults. We're mature. We're strong. We're capable. We're independent. And Jesus takes that idea of relationship, that guiding principle, and just flips it on its head. Upside down in this passage. In verse 35, it says, uh, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. And we've talked about this a bunch. If, I, if we hadn't talked about this a bunch before, that would probably be one of the central passages uh, that we'd spend time on today. But we've talked about about that before, right? We've talked about how Jesus is trying to show them that power and authority and glory comes through serving and, and, and you gain power by giving it away. You, you gain authority by serving other people and he's flipping the whole economy of the world on, on its head in that regard. But, but Jesus takes us further in this passage uh, when he gives us the next metaphor, which I think is one of the most powerful and beautiful metaphors in all of the Bible. It says he took a little child and had him stand among them Taking him in his arms, he said to them. Now this phrase, taking him in his arms, this isn't just a, a polite hug. 
This isn't the, you know, the standard side hug. This isn't the, you know, the bend over and keep a distance hug type of thing. This isn't the, the guy hug. You shake a hand, you go like this, you pat, pat twice on the back. And it's not any of those kind of hugs. It's not even the politician's kind of hug that we're going to see over the next seven weeks where they take the baby and they turn him for a picture. What they're really turning him for is not just the picture. They just don't want him to spit up on their outfit and mess it up, right? It's not any of those things. This is more of the hug where, where when your child greets you at the end of the day with a big squeal and comes running at you and jumps into your arms and you just hug them so close and swing them around kind of a hug. This is the, this is the kind of hug that you have at the end of the day when the, when the child's falling asleep in your arms and you're just holding them gently, caressing their head and you're enjoying the fact that they're no longer crying. And you're just loving your kid. Jesus said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me, the very presence of God. Jesus is saying this is how we are to be towards one another. And God inhabits this kind of relationship when we get this kind of perspective on love. But what does it mean? What does it mean? So when, when's the last time you had a toddler or an infant uh, and you took them out to eat at a fancy restaurant? For some of you, that's last night, and it stressed you out. For some of us, it's, you know, 15 years ago. For some of you, maybe 30, 40 years ago. I don't know. What did you feel like when they started crying at this fancy, beautiful restaurant and they started acting up? What kind of looks did you get from other people who were there for a nice, a nice romantic date night? when your kids started crying. Or, or maybe think of it this way. How comfortable or how at ease are you when you're flying on an airplane with a little kid and they're crying and whining and they're kicking the seat back in front of you and you just, just can't wait for that thing to get over and to get off the plane? You see, children take more than they give back, don't they? Children, especially at a young age, require every need of theirs to be served and met. And children, if we're honest, most children, unfortunately, even teenagers, are generally unaware of the sacrifices you're making for them. When's the last time you had your child come to you and say, Dad, Mom, I'm so happy that you, I'm so thankful that you put in those extra billable hours so that I could have my music lessons and go to camp? Anybody have that happen recently? It doesn't happen very often, does it? You know, or when's the last time you got a better job and your situation in life became better, more profitable, more successful because of your child? Uh, did you ever come home from work on a bad day going, I wish I had a new job, or maybe it was a really bad day and you've just been fired, and your little four, fourth grader comes up to you and says, Daddy, it'll be okay. The, my friend in art class, his dad's the HR vice president Chase, and I'll just take care of you. Anybody ever have that happen? You know... We don't love children because they make our lives richer, wealthier. We don't love children because they improve our social status. We don't love children because they do all the chores for us. We love them because they're our kids. 
We love them because they bring out in us the, the most beautiful things of life, because they're adorable, because they're lovable, because even when they're naughty, they make us laugh. And, and they, they give us this challenge in life to, and this ultimate joy in life of reproducing something that is good, something that's beautiful, something that's meaningful in life. We love them because they're our child, in spite of the fact that it will require sacrifice untold, despite the fact that we will feel like they're slaves all too often. Jesus is asking us to love people that way. You see, we view people around us as adults, and we get annoyed when they act up, when they act like kids, when they aren't fully independent, when they are needy, when they text us in the middle of the night and we wish they wouldn't. And Jesus is asking us to change our perspective of love, to love others as a father, as a mother would love their child. This last week I had the kind of a rare luncheon. It's just, it doesn't happen very often in life. In fact, that's probably the only time it's ever happened. I got to sit next to this guy who was a, who was a sports agent. Deals with a lot of uh, big names, helping them uh, as a, like a, a headhunter, basically. Helping people in job transitions and and he's a, he's a godly man who wants to make a difference for Christ in that field. And he just started sharing his story, saying, you know, he said, I, you would never believe how many times when I've seen somebody who's just this macho, really outrageously successful person who's, who's worked their way up from the bottom all the way up to the top of this organization over 15 or 20 years and they get fired. How many times I'll walk in and they are just frozen or they're angry or they're sitting almost in a fetal position crying because they, they don't even know what to do next. They're de- dependent, like a child. And Jesus is inviting us to, sacrifice, to the sacrifice of, of loving others like a child, believing in them when they don't believe in themselves, believing in them all the time, even when they're messing up, trusting in the goodness of God, our Heavenly Father, to discipline them, to grow them up, even though they're not grown up Yet, putting up with the me-centeredness of others, as we all have, and together learning to be adult children of our Heavenly Father, to be willing to put up with each other's temper tantrums, each other's foolishness, each other's fears, each other's dependence, to be the servant of all, treating others as our own kids, You know, we don't look at our kids, whether they're our biological kids or adopted kids, whether they're completely healthy or not. We we just love them all. We We don't treat them with any kind of difference. We don't see any ethnic difference. We don't see any socioeconomic difference. The fact that they don't have money, that doesn't bother us. We don't see, we don't get bothered by the fact that they're not a, they're not fully cognitively developed and smart or whatever it is. They, they, you know, we just don't have those barriers. And yet, in our world today, we're taught to have those barriers so often, even when we try not to, right? Let's just use this as an example. One of the big things in our society today is this idea that, that the, when people argue against Christianity or, or any other statement of, of morality or absolutism, I mean, because Christ makes exclusive claims, right? 
Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus makes the claim to being the authority of God to have to be the one and only authority in morality. And those are exclusive claims. And, and people around will look at that in our culture today and go, well, that's just crazy. That's so exclusive. That's so intolerant. That's so... We should be inclusive because that's what love is. And yet... If we want to really honestly look at it, when somebody says that argument and says, well, you are bad because you're so, you're making such an exclusive claim. You, you're wrong because you're making such an exclusive claim. You're unloving. You're, you're hating because you're making an exclusive claim. They, and, and we're not because we're inclusive. They've actually just drawn a line in the sand and they're doing exactly what they said we're doing. They're being exclusive because anybody who doesn't believe like them isn't right isn't good. See, the reality is in in a social culture today, it's impossible to have an organized social culture without exclusive claims of some sort. And so wouldn't it make more sense in our faith? Wouldn't it make more sense in pursuing what really is true and right to look at somebody who makes exclusive claims but then teaches people to be completely inclusive? And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is demanding that we follow him as Lord. And then he's saying, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to love like me. You're going to love like a parent to a child who doesn't exclude somebody because they're not ready or different or, or unhealthy or mean or bad. You don't exclude them. You still pursue them. You still love them. You still have them in your... It doesn't make any difference whether they're black or white. It doesn't make any difference whether they're Jew or Arab. It doesn't make any difference whether they're Republican or Democrat, at least to most times. Right? It doesn't make any difference. We love him anyway. And if we're the salt of the earth, we offer them a covenant of friendship and draw them close like the image of Jesus describes to us. To be the servant of all, treating others with such a love. Jesus like no other religion, like no other person on the face of the earth, actually is making an inclusive claim to how we should live like everybody who claims to want inclusiveness. I mean, he's the ideal. Love everybody. Treat them with the same loyalty and friendship that you would if they were your child with the same tenderness, the same intensity of compassion. That is the most inclusive statement ever made in history. In fact, if you look at the early church history and you read all the different scholars who write about why did this church explode so much, the one conclusion almost all the scholars will make, whether they are Christ followers or not, is the church was the most inclusive thing that ever hit the planet. Every other religion in Jesus' time was exclusive. The Greek faith was for intellectuals and the, and the dumb were excluded. The other, other faiths were for, I mean, they, they all had their exclusive claims and they all had their prejudice. And the brilliance of Jesus is that he sent his people out to love everybody. And the early church, we see the uneducated and we see the wisest people in the kingdom in the empire being saved. We see the very utter poor and we see the richest people in the, in, in the empire being saved and they form this beautiful community where they're friends. I heard the story this last week of this aristocratic Welsh doctor 
He was raised in the highest circles of society in England, trained in the best places in England. And later in his life, he came to Christ and, and he felt like God told him to become a pastor and he became a pastor in this poor mining village. And a few years after he did that, he wrote and said something, and I won't quote it exactly, I'll say it, paraphrase it. He basically said, I, I would rather, I find more joy sitting on the front step talking to this toothless illiterate grandmother about life and faith than I do sitting in my college pub talking with my friends who I love who are so intellectually profound because, and this is where it's profound, because he says, I understood, I finally understand the difference between real fellowship and just scintillating conversation, between real fellowship and just nice entertainment. Why do we get together? We don't get together like the Republicans and the Democrats do. They get together to what? They get together to affirm their prejudices and bash the other people. We don't get together for that reason. We get together across all boundaries, whether we're rich or poor, educated or not, whether we're blue-collar or white-collar, whether we're whatever. We get together and we form a beautiful community and that's what God is inviting us to simply because we love and we praise this God who created each one of us, whose love is the same for each one of us, who created us all for a good purpose, who invites us to be a part of that same kind of love. As he, our Father, loves us, so we love others. And Jesus, in saying this whole piece, the big relationship question he's leaving with us, and when he says the greatest is the servant of all, and, and, and then the beautiful object of the lesson of the child, and that we should love others like a child, is basically leaving us with the question, am I going to serve my own needs and please myself? And that could be in many different ways. Let's just give a couple examples. Am I going to serve and meet my own needs and how I choose my friends in a small group at Quest? Or am I going to serve and meet my own needs by only inviting the people I'm most comfortable with to patio nights or to, over to my home to meet my friends? Am I going to only reach out and care for the people that I'm most comfortable relating with or... Or am I going to serve and discover a relationship that's much deeper than that? Am I going to be a person who is the salt of the earth to whoever God brings across my path? You know, if you're here and you're unsure of your faith, if, you're always been, if you've always been troubled by the exclusive claims of Jesus, if you're going to choose a faith to follow, wouldn't you rather choose this one? who says, believe in me absolutely and then be the most loving, inclusive person on the face of the planet. Jesus challenges us to, ch challenges us to change our perspective of others and love them inclusively like a parent's love for children being the servant of all. But third, the text goes on and Jesus takes us a step further. And in this next metaphor, he kind of flips it on its head. He flips this metaphor of the children on, on to us teaching us about the joyful, trusting, risking, abandon through which any well-loved child is going to live. Jesus is inviting us to be the salt of the earth with that same kind of abandon. 
In verse 38, it says this, Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now, this kind of sounds to me like a playground fight about to happen. It also sounds to me like something I hear in church on a regular basis. It sounds like this big, hairy, red flag concern that we have about not wanting things to be messy, not wanting things to be wrong, about quality control. John, if you allow me to paraphrase, John is essentially saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'm worried about the negative impact this person over here is going to have because he's not with us. He hasn't spent enough time with us. Jesus, they haven't, he hasn't heard as much of your teaching as we have. He doesn't probably even know enough. He probably isn't mature enough, so we stopped him. We told him to grow up. We told him to be more mature before you do that stuff. But Jesus responds and says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. And Jesus, in saying that, is saying something really profound that we so easily mess up in our, when it comes to our relationship with others, especially when it comes to faith. He's, he's essentially just saying to us, trust the Holy Spirit. If someone does something in my name and it happens, it means the Spirit is there. It means I am there. I'm doing something. Can you trust me in their life to lead them, even if they're a, an immature child? Can you trust me enough to work with them and make something good out of their life, even if they don't know enough. He's essentially saying everyone gets to play. As children, we all get to play. We all get to do stuff. and We all get to do the stuff he calls us to do. And we should expect mistakes. We should expect messes. But he's saying to us, trust me and bless other people in what they're doing and encourage them. There's a story that I heard eight years ago that's just stuck with me. It's just, it's made a profound impact in my life. And I was with a bunch of uh, uh, Christian leaders who were talking about discipleship in a couple day forum type of a thing. And we were talking about specifically discipleship of leaders. And, and one guy in the midst of this, as we started to get a lot of good ideas on the table, stood up. And, and he's a guy I respected. He, he told this story. Um, he said in the Philippines, and he was aware because he was a part of the, the movement that was associated with the story I'm telling you about. He said in the Philippines in the middle of the last century, there was this outbreak of God moving, this revival, if you will, start to happen. It was just started on this little village in the Philippines. And one day the, the missionaries and the people were praying for some people and they experienced God and some of them got healed and they gave their lives to Christ. It was just a small couple people. And they immediately went out that day and got all their friends and they brought them over and they said, we're going to pray for you in Jesus' name as well, just like these guys did. And more people got healed, more people came to Christ. And they were started to meet daily and call themselves a church and they kept growing and growing. And within a week they decided, well, there's other communities around us that need to know about Christ. So some of the women paired up in twos and went to all the villages around and they started praying for people and People would get healed. People would experience God. People would accept Christ. And a church would spring up. And the same thing had happened over and over and over again. And within a year, there were between 500 and 1,000 churches and thousands and thousands of people who had been baptized and come to faith in Christ. And the U.S. missionaries looked at it and said, well, we've got a problem. Now, part of the reason there was, it was usually women, not always, but usually women who went to the next villages is because uh, the men needed to stay home and do the work or go to their jobs to support the family. It was the women in, that, in those villages who were more free and able to leave. But the problem was most of these women didn't know how to read. 
And so the American missionaries started to say, and the U.S. missionaries who were overseeing it started to say, well, we need to do a leadership training program. We need to, we need to help them because we're concerned that something bad is going to happen. It's going to be a big heresy. We're going to have problems with it. And, and it didn't take very long. They got the program put together, started it, and within six months, the growth stopped. And it never happened again because the message was clearly sent. You don't know enough. You haven't spent enough time with Jesus to be doing what you're doing. You're not one of us yet. You see, if relationships are the mission, then allowing people the freedom to be enthusiastic and act on the passion and the love they feel from God and share that love and passion that God puts in their life, regardless of whether it's fully mature in them or not, is more important than knowing and doing everything right. There will be mistakes made. Jesus is saying, everyone who names my name gets to play. And yet the greatest ineffectiveness in the American church today is that we have this thing that you need to stop. You can't do anything until you know enough. It's really only the ministers and the elders who can really do the stuff. We need to have them go and pray for people because they're the only ones whose stuff happened. They are the only ones who know how to answer all the questions. And so we don't share we don't go and share the joy that God has given us. We don't share the abandon that, of, of our love for our father. That, that any child would, I mean, how many children of a great father run around and say, my dad could beat your dad up? I mean, or he's just great. He's an amazing. You know, I mean, they just brag on him all the time, right? And we lose that abandon because we have this idea of what maturity is. And Jesus is saying, that's not right. You can do the stuff. You are the salt of the covenant of friendship. Go pray for people. Don't just say, I'm going to pray for you at home. Pray for them there and see what happens. See if God shows up. See what he does. I got to pray recently for a person who doesn't really know for sure about their faith yet. And several of us were praying for him and he was going, I just feel happy God was showing up. There was this presence there, just simple prayer, nothing theologically profound. Just care for people. Give them a cup of water like Jesus says. Love like they are your child and brag on your good father with abandon and make room for him to show up. Because here's the question. It's almost too practical. It's almost too obvious. Do we best parent kids by preventing them from doing things until they do everything right? We know the answer to that, right? It's obvious. Certainly not. The best parents let their kids explore. They let them try things. They, they believe in them and they follow them up and they clean the messes up and they don't worry about the messes. Let's be God's kids. Let's try stuff. Let's go make some messes and see what it'll do. And Jesus is so serious about this paradigm shift, this idea shift about what healthy relationship is founded in. He's so serious about it that he not only spells out for us the example of it, but then he gives us a warning if we don't do it and uses hyperbole and says lots of scary stuff. 
He goes on and says, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell with where the fire never goes out. And it goes on and on and on. And that last phrase, if you really understand what he's saying there, is outrageously scary in that passage when he says the worm does not die and all that stuff. That's, uh, we won't, that's just, that's like the best horror flick ever. Jesus is inviting us to live in relationship with others like adoring children bragging about our good Father. And He's inviting us to love others as our own children with the patience, the love, all the creativeness, all the faithfulness, all the beauty that that entails. And there is no bigger change. I think this is the reason why Mark shares this and Jesus shares this so pointedly at this point when they shift the topic to what does it mean to follow him. I think they share this early because I don't think there is a bigger, more important metaphor that Jesus uses for us to grasp that will lead us to healthy relationship more than this one that we're looking at today. And it goes on to say, because salt is good, But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? See, salt that is not salty makes no difference in life. And all too often, we walk through life indifferent. We walk into rooms and we size people up and decide who we're going to hang hang, hang with and who we're not, and we're indifferent to the needs of the people around us. We... We walk into a room where there's lots of needs and we feel overwhelmed by it, like we don't have all the answers, like we're confused, like, and we're afraid to ask the question of even opening up that pot and we walk away from that relationship indifferent. All too often we walk through life indifferent to the pain and the, and the lost state of people's faith around us. In 1986, the Nobel Peace Prize winner was, forgive me, I didn't look this up. It's either Eli Wiesel or Ellie Wiesel. Does anybody know whether that's a man or a woman? Man, thank you. Okay, I guess he's really famous, but okay. He made this statement. So the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. So Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. And as I look at this, I think the most powerful image is the image of Jesus hugging that child wildly with abandon. And my question is, how can we be that to people around us this week? How can we allow that image of how much Jesus wants to hug us to change the way we brag about him? others? How can that change the way we love each other when we really see Jesus hugging us that way? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're with us, that you love us so much, that you're so patient with us, even when we don't get it, that you're not afraid of our lack of understanding, our confusion. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to not be indifferent You'd help us not to lose our saltiness. And Lord, if we have, I pray that you would restore that saltiness to us as we're obedient to your invitation to love and to love inclusively, to love unconditionally, to share our love and your love for us with abandon. 
Lord, give us the eyes to see how we walk into a room and size people up and act exclusively. And Lord, lead us into the joy of loving differently. Lead us into the joy of loving more deeply and of discovering the amazing blessing of loving others like you love us as your children. And Lord, as we do, may your kingdom come and may your will be done here in our families, among our friends, in our community, as it's done in heaven. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the invitation is simple. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is powerful. Salt is valuable. Can you go with God this week and let your saltiness, which comes from Him, deepen your relationship with others to bring out the best in others? And will you love those people who annoy you, those people who are frustrating to you, those colleagues you sit next to at work who you just endure putting the conversation, will you love them like your children? Will you love that neighbor who never cuts his grass and is not nice to you? Like he's your child, unconditionally, generously, creatively. And will we allow God Will we take the risk so that he'll make a difference through your life this week? That's the invitation. If you came here with other prayer needs, we would absolutely love to pray for you. Um, We prayed for people after first service, and and there were people who just needed a sense of healing and people who uh, were around who just felt like their emotions were frozen and they were about to break. And people who were praying before service felt those were things that God wanted to touch today. So if you're here and either any of those relate to you, would you respond to what God shared to other people before service and prayer and come and let somebody pray for you and allow God to finish that? Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.